0: So if you like what we're doing here if you support the show and you want to give support to the show you can do so by going to patreon.com/letstalknative and if you do so we'll provide you some exclusive content and some things that uh, others aren't going to get when you get it so support us by going to patreon. Yahweh. Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN Studios on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, Welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. I'm John Kane, and I want to welcome you to Let's Talk Native. This show, I'm going to do something I've never done before, and I'm not going to make any apologies for having not done it before. But it's just one of these things where I try not to wear this on my on my shirt sleeve, so to speak. Look, there are many people who, when they're trying to assert their credibility as an activist or as, you know, somebody being on the front lines of a, of a cause or whatever else, or, or or to gain what they call street cred, they'll say, well, yeah, I was once arrested or I've been arrested 43 times for this, this, and this. I've never done that. and I've never done that with this show. And I'm not going to do it today, today either. But I've never tried to bolster my reputation by talking about, being arrested or going to jail. But some like bringing that stuff up, especially when they're attempting to assassinate my character, so to speak. So I decided that I'm actually going to talk about my, um, the legal challenges of my past. <laughs> and and specifically, I did, I, I was put on trial. I was put on federal trial for the, the conflicts that occurred out in Oneida at the end of the 1980s. And that conflict had was involved the federal recognition of the, the so-called leader. It involved a you know, a, a business enterprise that, that existed on the territory. But most of it was was an internal struggle in Oneida. I'm not Oneida, but my wife is Oneida, and my children are Oneida, and I lived on Oneida territory at the time, or right there anyway. But what I was charged with was, Predominantly conspiracy charges. I was charged with two conspiracy charges. One, conspiracy to commit arson with no uh, substantive charge associated with. Nobody was charged with arson. And the obvious thing I need to say about that is the reason nobody was charged with arson isn't because there wasn't a fire, but because the federal prosecutors knew they couldn't prove a case against us. If they could, in fact, even if they thought there was a good chance they could, they would have charged us. But they had insufficient evidence to charge us with committing that violent act. So they used what is considered a tool of a prosecutor. Well, we can't charge him with that. So we're just going to charge him with with conspiracy to, to, to commit the act. I was also charged with conspiracy to commit riot. And that one, I was charged with the substantive charge of, of riot. Yeah, wh- whatever a riot is. You know, the legal definition of a riot is is an activity that, that interferes with interstate commerce, essentially, you know, that's, that's the definition of a, of a, of a riot. So it could be any number of a thing. Uh, it could be a fight, could be blocking a road, could be any, any number of things that qualifies by the, with the legal definition of a riot conspiracy just means that two or more people you know, had planned such a, such an event, tough thing to, de- to defend, easy thing to prosecute. So I was, I was um, charged and convicted conspiracy to commit arson, conspiracy to commit riot and riot. I was also charged with, with with perjury, which I was acquitted of. You know, they that charge again completely acquitted. I was that one I, I was exonerated from. I but I was also charged with obstruction of justice. Now the obstruction of justice charge basically was uh came out of a fist fight that I was in with, with somebody somebody with, with whom i didn't throw the first punch at it was two other people that were fighting i was there as as that split up one of the, one of the other guys came at me we got into a fight and later that charge which was which was me fighting with um, with an individual whose brother was suing me in federal court basically got turned around that i that i one of the reasons i had the fight with him was because I was being, uh, I was you know, a subject of a, of a of a federal trial, and so that's that's the the obstructive justice charge. Now, here's what the what the circumstance was. We had pushed back, and and I say we because I was among the Oneidas. They were pushing back against the federal recognition of Ray Halbritter as the leader of the Oneidas. And he was considered uh, persona non grata on on the Oneida territory. While we were there, and in fact we had predominantly everybody had left to go to midwinter ceremonies. the The bingo hall uh, was burned on the thirty on the thirty two acre territory of of Oneida, and it was after that that um, the attempt to to sue us in civil federal civil court to get a, to to leave the territory had turned into um, a criminal investigation, and a number of people, and I think there were 13 altogether, myself included, um, that were convicted of a range of charges, including, like I said, these conspiracy charges and and the like. And this was in federal court. We had a lot of support from Native people throughout the the Confederacy. Uh, on our position, on the position we had against the Hall Britters uh, and against the federal government bringing these charges in in court. And we went and we we, we stood trial. And I'll say that I not only stood trial, I I I refused and rejected any plea deals that were offered, and they were offered. And I also took the stand in my own defense. And and that's part of the reason I probably was at least acquitted of of the one charge. I was I think the only person in uh, that was uh, indicted that took the stand. So again, I vigorously defended myself. I to this day maintain my uh, my innocence or at least the lack of substance of the charges that were submitted against us. I did go to federal prison for. Uh, um, it was a two-year sentence, but I think I got off 90 days early. Um, I was sent to a prison in Texas and then finished that uh, that prison sentence in uh, in central Pennsylvania. Um, what I will say also is that William Kunstler, and for those of you who don't know who William Kunstler is, he is in many regards, one of the most famous, uh, us attorneys for human and civil rights. Uh, he only took on cases that he felt, um, uh, he, he believed, you know, his, his clients. I didn't pay him. This was a pro bono, uh, case that William consular take William Counselor, For those who don't recall, he, uh, he defended, um, uh, some of the guys in, in the in, in wounded knee, not Leonard Peltier, but I think Bob Radu is one of the ones that he uh, represented, he represented um, uh, the what is it? The Chicago eight, is it or yes, yeah, the, the Chicago eight um, um, conspiracy <laughs> that was the, the charges against those guys who um, who were charged with a riot at the uh, Democratic National Convention in Chicago Um. He also defended on appeal uh, uh, the Atlanta child uh, murderer. Um, I'm drawing a blank right now, but um, Wayne Williams. He defended him on uh, on appeal, and if you look into any one of those cases, you will see the gaping holes, um, either in in his successful defense or even in the the cases of like Wayne Williams, where he was not so successful. I mean, the Chicago eight, they actually lost on, uh, at trial, but then, uh, but then had the convictions overturned in, on appeal. And of course he did, he did successfully, uh, defend, uh, Bob Rabideau in, um, in, uh, at, from the wounded knee charges. My appeal was, was essentially a, a bit of a moot case because by the time my appeal had gone through the system, I was, uh, i had already served my time. But I bring this up because there are people who are trying to you know, impugn my character with these charges and uh, and I, I'll say that I'm an activist. I stand up and, and I fight for my, for my people and the, and the people that I'm associated with. And when you do that, you do sometimes face the wrath of the federal government, especially when the very people you're standing up to are the federal government or their federally recognized leadership. I mean, and that's what we saw in, you know, uh, again, that's part of what Wounded Knee was all about. The fact that you had federally recognized leadership that it was abusing people and people were standing up against them. So I have no shame. And no, necess- and, and I'm not, well, I have no shame in, in having been convicted at the federal level or having gone on trial. I also don't, Use that as some sort of, as I said earlier, some sort of street cred that's, that intended to, to bolster, you know, my, um, my reputation. Yeah. I'm not a fan of, of people trying to, um, build a reputation on, you know, based on those kinds of circumstances, put it that way. I, I don't wear my federal conviction as a, as a crown nor, or a badge of honor, nor do I wear it with shame, but I will say, you know, I, I think the fact that Bill Kunstler, um, took on my case is evidence that, uh, you know, that you know, at least he <laughs> believed that, uh, that my cause was a just cause. And, you know, and even as I battle some of the folks, um, that are, that are trying to assassinate my character with this thing, um, it's interesting that they'll ignore the the fact that we did have widespread support and we had widespread widespread support amongst you know people from from all over and so you know I, I think it's important to bring this thing up um, and I and I won't do multiple shows on it I mean at some point when when, when Jake and I uh, finish putting together all the details associated with with our first documentary, I will include this. In some of that that work, because I think it's important that people understand where I come from. You know, for those of you who are listening to the, to my podcasts or my radio shows over the years, you know that I speak from a from a place of experience. So when I talk about federal courts, when I talk about federal prisons, and I talk about what you know what the experience is like, I do speak from personal experience. and, you know, and I while I will never recommend anybody find themselves in, in a federal pr- prison, I I did find myself. And and as I mentioned, although I was pretty much spent most of my time in a, in a prison in Texas near Dallas and in a, in a prison in central Pennsylvania, when you get into that whole process, you are they have what they call diesel therapy where they're basically putting you from prison to prison until they designate you to a specific prison. I was in El Reno, Oklahoma. I was in a small parish prison in, in Louisiana. I, you know, we, they basically run you through, through these, this ringer. And they also do it in such a way that they send you far away from your home. So you can't have the family relationships. And then when you do get released and, and after doing my, my, what essentially would have turned out to be like I think, 22 months. I, I went in in January and I came out um, in October. Ironically, I think it came out the, the week after Columbus day <laughs> um, which was you know, kind of, kind of interesting. Um, but then I was on what was called two years of supervised release. And I was probably, Look, I don't know that I was the model prisoner, but I sure as hell wasn't the model, uh, the model supervised release candidate. I did not cooperate with the, the parole or the, the U.S. probation and parole very well. I didn't make all the meetings. And, and at some point, I just stopped going. And, I, and certainly the two years weren't up. But I remember specifically having a dispute with the, the, the person that I had to report, was supposed to report to each month. And I wouldn't take him. I was I was working in Oquasosne at the time and I wouldn't take him to my place of business or allow him to come to my place of business because I worked on a native territory. And this became a bit of a point of contention. And um and I said, Look, I'll make it to see you once a month as I can. And and that's the best I could do. And and he threatened me. He said that he could take my case in front of the judge who sentenced me. And and I remember answering back to him, and I said, you go ahead. You go ahead and try to drag me in front of Judge Munson again, and let's see whose head he chews off, yours or mine. But I said, but between you and me, I did two years standing on my head. I can do it again. And his response back to me was, well, what about your family? And to me, that was such a telling comment to come from you know some pissant that works for the federal government or, US, or the U.S probation and parole to have him knowingly throw it in my face that if that if he had the power to put me back in prison that it would be a punishment to my wife to my wife and my three small children that um yeah that one angered me and it was probably the first time that that i really just i may have displayed non-cooperation with this guy. But after he did that, I literally grabbed the hold of a guy and I said, are you threatening my family? And, and so that was the last day that I actually reported for my supervised release. And it was only, it was probably only, only a year in, but it kind of shows you, you know, the, the incompetence of the, not only the personnel, but the system, nobody, nobody ever came back to me and said, I didn't finish my supervised release term. Uh, but I will say there were, it was years later that, uh, I was coming back from, from Gunawage, uh, crossing the U S Canadian border. Ironically, I was, I was coming back <clears throat> because I was supposed to go, um, um, meet not, it wasn't years later. It was years after my, um, Oh my God, I think this went one through. Yeah. I think I was still actually on supervised release. I'm sorry, but I, I had come back, um, back through and I was supposed to be going to meet my probation officer and they, and they basically chained me to the wall at us customs and they, um, because they still had me being wanted by the, you know, by the police editor served my time, but, um, uh, I had to go through that process with them and, and they still, as far as the U S side was concerned, I had, um, i not satisfied the, the charge. So, they actually got a hold of the the agent that was involved in you know in the investigation and and he was kind of he, he thought it was kind of funny. I I was actually on the phone with him and you know I, I wasn't you know expressing terrible outrage to him, but you know the fact is that he says, ah, it's kind of funny. He, it's kind of funny that you uh, you know that they that they grabbed you at the border, and you know they also got a hold of the 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 probation officer at that time to ensure that I had permission to cross. The reality is I don't know that I did or I didn't. But I will say that I did at a time later on, on the Canadian side, um, face problems getting into Canada to go to see my family. And this was years after the supervised release and all that stuff was done. As far as they were concerned, I still had a warrant out. And I said, no, that was satisfied. And their concern was they had nothing that, that was, um, that corresponded to the obstruction of justice charge. And so as far as Canada, Canadian law was concerned, that charge was tantamount to, um, attempted murder. And, and I said, look, I served two years and it was, it was, you know, it was, um, oh, what do you call it's not like I served a two-year bit, just of that, but it, but it ran concurrently with the other charges. Obviously, I didn't try to kill anybody, but um, I, so I had a bit of a standoff at both U.S. Customs and at Canadian Customs, just trying to as a as a Mohawk as a Gonyo Geha trying to um, go back and forth from uh, from territories on this side to territories on the other side. So I, I bring that up because that is part of the experience, and. You know, and it's part of that experience of, of having gone through the federal justice system, and um, and and just so, I, I guess in a way, uh, this is part of it's clearing the air. But uh, again, I want to be clear that I, that I'm not putting this stuff out there as some sort of badge of honor. Um, I know there are people who will who have tried to use this, and because they say, well, you're a convicted felon, or that you were guilty of riot again, to be clear, I was never charged with stealing anything. I was uh, acquitted of lying. Uh, the only charges that stood was, was specifically a fist fight where I didn't throw the first punch, but I, I will say that I got the better of the other guy. <laughs> um, and that got turned into a federal a federal charge rather than just a simple you know, disorderly conduct or assault charge. I, I probably was guilty of disorderly conduct because we were we did fight in a public place. But I wasn't guilty of, of an assault because I didn't start the fight um, and I didn't attack anybody. You know, It was more what I would consider legally defined as, as mutual combat. We agreed to fight, so to speak. As far as the, the riot and the, uh, and the, and the um, conspiracy to commit riot charge, this was a disturbance on the Oneida uh, territory. There's no way that any activity on any of our native lands um, as it relates to a disturbance, an, an internal affair should have ever been elevated to the point of a of the federal statute of riot. But that's what that's what they did. And of course, the the conspiracy to commit arson charge was a trumped up charge, a trumped up charge because there was probably just as much evidence that the the folks on the other side had committed that um you know, that act as certainly anything they could have put against us. If they had evidence they could have put put against us to charge any of us with arson, they would have done so. And they didn't, this wasn't, and look, this wasn't a charge that we beat. It was a charge that we never even faced, but many people will take that conspiracy to commit arson charge as somehow being guilty of, uh, of having, you know, um, committed the arson itself. And that's not, not at all what the case is. Um, so I think it's you know, part of the reason I wanted to address this is because, look, you can find this stuff up on, online and I, I've never even looked for it. But I mean, you can find all the information you can find, you know, the fact that William Kunstler was my attorney. And uh, and and you can read all the details yourself if, you, if anybody cares to do it. I don't recommend anybody do it. It's kind of boring. It, it was never anything that sensational. And and look, I am not comparing myself to Leonard Peltier. I went to prison for two years. Uh, but I will say that I was not released early. I did not get released to a halfway house. I did not get, um, released to early home confinement or any of that stuff. I did, I did every day that, uh, that I was supposed to, to do. And, and while in prison, I, I just did my time. Uh, you know, I, I, I do have prison stories and I can tell a few, I guess, <laughs> since we're on this subject, one of the things that they do when they when they lock you up in the federal system is they try to put you to work and in f- some federal prisons they have what they call federal prison industries one of the uh the companies is called Unicor, and they make everything from harnesses for you know, uh for for defense um uniforms brushes brooms desks and furniture and the uh, when i was de- for the later half of my, my sentence, I was, um, designated to work for unicorn in a, in a furniture factory, making furniture for, uh, predominantly for, for governments, uh, government offices. They, they would have to buy from unicorn first if unicorn had them. And there I refused to work. I refused to participate in, uh, in finishing furniture. And, and that was a bit of a point of contention. And, and I was confronted by with it often by by the um, corrections officers uh, in uh, in the in the prison. The immediate correction officer in charge of the department where I was designated, he he understood it. We talked at length, and he understood that I was there not to do prison labor for the for the federal government and. That I would just sit there and mind my own business and and just watch everybody. <laughs> but you know, I wouldn't. I couldn't bring reading material. I couldn't do anything like that. <clears throat> um, I couldn't, you know, find other ways to occupy my time. But uh, the supervisor of that facility oftentimes would be annoyed at seeing my lack of production and. And so we, we did get into it one time and, he, and he, he tried to call me lazy and I said, no, I'm not lazy. I said, I just refuse to work for you. I got sentenced to time, not to labor. And in that, that discussion, he, he got pretty angry and, uh, and, I, and I told him, I said, look, now you've got yourself all upset Instead of, you know, and now you made a big public spectacle in, a bunch of, in front of a bunch of inmates who are comfortable working to do their time here. I'm not, that's how they're doing their time. And it's, and it's their prerogative to do that. but now you putting me on display, you might ruin, lose some of your workforce here. And, and I told him, I said, look, you're, you have this job because you didn't have a successful career in any other industry. you got this job. Your father was a warden in another prison or something like that. And you, so you're doing time just like I am. You may be able to go home every night, but you know what? In another six months, I'm out of here and you'll still be doing this. And he got really, he got, anyway, he got really pissed off. And he, he, uh, he called in the correction officer ahead of my department and, um, and basically chewed him out. And then they, then they moved me to a different place. <laughs> but when you get released from, from prison, one of the things that they do is they have you do a walk around and you have to go to all the places like laundry and, you know different places you, know, if you went to the library or whatever make sure the things were were checked off so to speak but I had to go to my work assignment and the guy who was the the senior plant manager at Unicor, um, and this was in Allenwood Pennsylvania basically said to me he said mr. Kane I hope I never see you again and he said that I mean that in both in both ways I hope you never end up back in prison and if you do, I hope I never have to have you in mind <laughs> because he, he considered me a, a major pain in his ass. And and I told him I appreciated his sentiment. And uh, and I was glad that we could we could part, you know, even in that situation where he understood who I was and I understood he, who he was. It was a unique situation because even doing prison time, I earned the respect of a fellow inmates. And I earned the respect of, uh, of the hacks, as they call them, or the, the corrections officers. One of the one time in particular that, that comes to mind was, this was a desert storm had just, uh, had recently occurred with the first George Bush. And I remember having a conversation that was me and, and four corrections officers. We were sitting around talking politics <laughs> And the, the main plant manager walked up and saw all three of those guys. He just stood there, put his hands on his uh, hips and shook his head. And the three corrections officers just kind of slinked, (laughs) slinked away. And there I was just, I was the only one left and I was the only one smiling. Uh, But, um, you know, again, I earned the respect of the, of the corrections officers uh, and, and the, uh, and and the, uh, my fellow inmates at the same time. So uh, it was a it was a unique experience, not one that I recommend anybody go go through, but it's also the kind of experience that when you go through a federal trial and you are convicted and you go to prison, it's real easy to come out of that situation saying, "Oh, I'm never going to do that again." And look, I had a family, I had a wife, and I had uh, three children. I had to put my family back together. So on one hand, I had to. Give some assurance that I would never be in a situation that that or not um, knowingly put myself in a situation like that. But one of the things that I came to learn is that if the federal government wants to lock you up, they can. They can make the charges. They can and they can make them stick. You know, defending yourself in a federal trial, unless you're you know wealthy and you have you know you can hire you know some influential lawyer. I was grateful to have William Kunstler do my appeal, but he wasn't there for my trial. I probably would have done, done much better. Worked, I probably would have, would have walked if, if William Kunstler was available uh, to me for my trial. But I was there with a court-appointed attorney, um, and they had the full weight and uh, all the resources of the federal government to, uh, to bring—we had a seven-week trial. And you can bet it was a costly trial. Not only did they have to pay for all of the their U.S. attorneys, but they had to pay for all the court appointed attorneys as well. So, look, it is, it, it's, a, it's a tough situation. But if you are an activist, if you stand up, like I said, to the federal government or the federal government's designees, there's always the possibility you could face such a thing. I did and I came through it and I remained an activist. I it didn't slow me down, it didn't stop me, it didn't discourage me. I can't say that's that's the case with everybody else. I know that there were 13 people convicted and 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 I would I would submit that many of the 13 um lived very quiet lives after that. I would also maintain that I'm not one of them. I did not live live a quiet life. I went on to do um, to stand very strongly with over native issues. Obviously, I'm uh, I do radio and podcasts and television and all kinds of things. So, I will say that the experience that I gained from that trauma, if you will, or that tragedy or tragic tra- part of tragic part of my life and my family's life was something that, uh, if anything, I think uh, bolstered my um, my commitment to what I do. So. I sit here with no shame for it and no particular pride, but having been, um, bolstered by the experience. So that's my story and I am sticking to it. And, uh, I'll probably not talk about it much on, on future shows, but just so you know, that's, that's what the deal was. So, all right, we'll see you next time. This is John Cain and this is let's talk native. Yahweh.